This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, it's the start of the story of Beowulf. And you'll see that you might want to hold off having some friends over for a party, especially if your neighbor is a legendary monster with some strong opinions about noise pollution. We'll also learn a great excuse if you're late for anything. You're so sorry, you just had to stop off and fight some sea monsters. Works every time. Then, on the Creature of the Week, if you're continually waking up covered in this creature's vomit, you might want to rethink some of your life choices. This is the Myths and Legends Podcast, Episode 60A. I'm kind of a big deal. This is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. This week's episode is brought to you by A Divided Spy by Charles Cumming. Critics are calling Charles Cumming the heir to John le Carré. Uncover the truth in A Divided Spy from New York Times bestselling author Charles Cumming. Booklist gives A Divided Spy a starred review, calling it an airtight espionage plot full of unanticipated plot twists. Read A Divided Spy by Charles Cumming. For more information, visit adividedspy.com. Today, like I said, is the story of Beowulf. And you've probably heard of Beowulf before. It's the super famous Anglo-Saxon epic poem. It's set in modern-day Denmark and Sweden, somewhere around 500 or 600 AD, so a little later than the King Arthur legends, but before any Viking tales we've talked about. Even though it's set in Scandinavia, it was written in England, with the oldest surviving manuscript we have being written around 1000 AD. We don't really know who wrote the story. It's possible that it could have been a court poet of one of the English kings, or a monastic poet. Given the poem's largely anachronistic Christian themes, meaning the characters, Beowulf especially, espoused Christian doctrine and platitudes when the Christianization of Scandinavia hadn't really begun yet. So that's likely an addition of a later writer. It's likely that this story had a long oral history before being put down to paper. Anyway, it's a legend. So while some of the characters are historical and some of the places might have existed, it's largely made up. Beowulf, the character, is likely not a historical figure. Also, listening back over this episode, I say Mead Hall a lot but it kind of sounds like I'm saying meat hall. It's mead, M-E-A-D. It's basically honey wine, and it's all over the place in Anglo-Saxon folklore, Norse myth, and the Viking sagas. I like the super sweet versions, but I've had some listeners reach out saying that it's not always super sweet, but it can be really dry too. Anyway, a mead hall is a place where people would get together to, yeah, drink mead, but it would also be a place of feasting, celebration, and might be the residence of the king. We'll jump right into the story with King Rothgar, and his Mead Hall. King Rothgar walked next to the hall, running his fingers along the rough-hewn wood. The sun was warm at his back, but he knew night would be here soon. He knew he would have to leave this place. Rothgar swallowed hard. This Mead Hall was supposed to be a bright place in a dark world. It was supposed to be a wonder of the world, and it was a symbol of Hrothgar's power and authority, that he could hold forts against the enemies of his people. He invited people from far and wide to see and enjoy his meat house, and gave out rings to his retainers. But even more important than the political power it projected, the meat house was going to be a bright, warm place, in the midst of the cold and darkness, where people could gather, sing, and for a short time, forget the dangers and fears of life. The meat hall wasn't just a meat hall, it was hope. It was one small area where the humans could tell the darkness, the monsters, and the dragons that they could only go this far. 
One meat hall was a small place, but it was their place. And it was a symbol that things could be different. That the people didn't need to live in fear of what lurked in the darkness. That they could come together and be happy. Except they couldn't. In those early nights, the darkness fought back. It was so quick the first time that Hrothgar thought it was a dream. There was screaming, sickening crunches, and then nothing. When Hrothgar and the others woke the next morning in the meat hall, they saw it. Blood smeared on the floor by the door. Fragments of bone and blood speckling the walls. One bench had been smashed, and from the looks of the blood trailing off into the desolate fens, something had come in from the frozen darkness. Whatever it was, it had taken ten men with it, bleeding and broken, off into the marshes. And not just ten normal men, but ten medieval Danish warriors, which, as far as legendary warriors go, the ancestors of the Vikings are pretty high on the list of people you do not want to mess with. And whatever it was that took them did so without waking the other people, sleeping in the hall. Hrothgar was resolute, though. He had faced armies, the worst the early Middle Ages had to throw at him. And he had won. His great-great-grandfather was a foundling, and he rose to create this kingdom. The successive kings of Hrothgar's line carved out more and more of the wilderness, until Hrothgar became the most powerful of all, ruler of vast armies. And he turned his mind to making the Mead Hall, to crafting his own wonders. He would not be stopped now by some demon from the darkness. He didn't even need to tell his men. They found their spears, swords, and mail, and got ready for the night. That evening, serious and sober-ish, the warriors were ready for the monster. It came well after midnight from the moonless darkness. The doors burst open and the fires were blown out. The cold and darkness invaded the magnificent meat hall and so did the monster. Yells and battle cries were replaced by screams and more sickening cracks. Blood and armor flew in the darkness and no one knew where it was, but it knew where they were. Almost as quickly as it entered, the creature was gone. The fires were relit and they saw the destruction in the meat hall and the blood-smeared, trampled grass, still steaming in the cold outside. Whatever it was, it was gone, and it had taken more men. On the following nights, more men and women waited in the meat hall, and more men and women were taken. Soon, Hrothgar, in deep shame, said people shouldn't sleep in the hall. People still tried to use it as a gathering place, to enjoy a few drinks and music and warmth before heading home, but whatever creature haunted the frozen moors watched them, and... Night after night, more people disappeared on their way home. Hrothgar could barely bring himself to do it, but they boarded up the meat hall and locked it with heavy chains. It became a cursed place, a source of deep shame for Hrothgar and his kingdom. Now, no one would live within a few miles of the meat hall. It was cold and desolate, but Hrothgar would come to it occasionally, in the morning, giving himself plenty of time to get safely clear before nightfall. He would come to the meat hall with a heavy heart, remembering why he had built it mourning the future that might have been. Hrothgar saw the sun starting to get lower, and he knew he had to leave this place before it returned. He climbed atop his horse and rode for home. Passing leafless trees in the dead of winter, Hrothgar, lost in thought, didn't see the man until he was right in front of the king. It was Wolfgar, with a message from the watchman on the shore. Some strange people had arrived from across the sea. The watchman already had the situation in hand, Fifteen men were kneeling on the gravelly shore, spears pointing at their faces. They were Geats, from modern-day Sweden, and the watchman was questioning them as to why they were here. The big one, the obvious leader, clothed the male with long, blonde hair, 
He asked if what they'd heard was true, about the danger in the dark nights, about the corpse maker mongering death in their lands, which that's an actual quote from the poem. I use the Seamus Heaney version. It is awesome. I posted a link in the show notes if you're interested. The watchman looked to the ground and didn't answer the leader. Well, the man said he had come to help. He can show the king a way to defeat his enemy. He can bring King Hrothgar and the land peace, if any peace is to reach Hrothgar. Otherwise, his shame will stand as tall as that meat hall of his. The watchman and the others thought about it, and then lowered their spears. This sort of thing happened from time to time, where warriors would show up wanting to fight the monster that haunted the hall. The watchman said they would watch the warriors' ships, meaning that they would guard them tonight, and that they would be able to take them tomorrow. Because no one ever came back from the mead hall alive. Hrothgar might have been nervous. Standing in the abandoned mead hall made him uneasy. Especially as night crept closer and closer. Then, he heard the men from the coast, outside. They were laughing and talking. It had taken them a while to get here, since they didn't bring horses with them. They began entering the meat hall, and then Hrothgar saw the one that said he could save them, the man named Beowulf. He was taller than his already imposing companions, and he was covered in mail, and his hair fell from his golden helmet, which doesn't really make a lot of sense. Beowulf walked into the hall and face first into a spider web. He looked around. The shattered benches and bits of bone were still strewn about the hall from the last time the beast, called Grendel, had attacked. The spider webs in the rafters above, long unused, were coated with dust, waving like a banner to Hrothgar's failure. Beowulf stepped forward. Not only did he tower above the other men in the room, but he decided to lay out his epic hero resume, line by line. If you're wondering how you know Beowulf is awesome, well, don't worry. Wait 10 minutes and he'll tell you. He was Beowulf, son of Ecthio, and he was just the best. The elders of his people said that he was the man for the job. Not only had they seen his awesome strength, Beowulf's words, not mine, they had seen his hair matted with clotted blood when he battled and bound five beasts, raided a troll nest, and slaughtered sea brutes. Presumably not in the same night, but who knows. Now, he wanted to fight Grendel, the great demon of the night that haunted the mead hall, and he would do it in single combat. King Hrothgar cocked his head. Did he just say single combat? Then why did he bring all these other... But Beowulf continued... Not only would he do it alone, but he would do it unarmed. Hrothgar sighed, Oh, cool. So, you're gonna die. For a minute there, I thought we were gonna be free of Grendel, but, you know, whatever. Having a symbol of his eternal shame blighting the landscape was fine too. See, Hrothgar had seen so many warriors come to prove their prowess over the years, and most of them ending up in pieces around the meat hall. All the others were never seen again. Now this one would grapple with Grendel, the monster they had hardly seen, yet who had claimed more lives than Hrothgar could remember. Hrothgar said that Beowulf and his warriors could sleep in the mead hall tonight. One night was all they would need, to kill Grendel or, as was much, much, much more likely, end up scattered around the hall. It was late afternoon by now, and Hrothgar ordered people in. If you remembered, there was still a vat or two of mead in the back. At least these men could drink before dying tonight. As Hrothgar made preparations, he turned when he heard one of his own men, striking up a conversation with Beowulf. The man, named Unferth, asked Beowulf if he was the one who took on Brekka in a swimming match in the open sea. Yep, that's me, smiled Beowulf. And you swam for seven days. Mm-hmm. And lost. Yeah, Beowulf said, but there's more of a story there. You see, we were neck and neck for days. We had grown up together, so I pushed him and he pushed me, but I knew he couldn't beat me. And then, 
six days in, sea monsters. Sea monsters, Hunforth said. Yeah, a lot of them, Beowulf said. Like, pick a number of sea monsters, that sounds super scary, and it was at least that plus one. One grabbed me, but luckily we were swimming with knives in our mouths, as all swimmers always should. The sea monster pulled me down, but I buried my knife in it, and it let me go. But the blood drove the others into a frenzy, and I spent the rest of the sixth day dodging teeth and stabbing until I saw light on the eastern horizon. I looked, and I couldn't see Brekka, the guy I was racing. Either he had been eaten by the beasts, or he kept swimming. When I reached the finish, I was exhausted and saw Brekka celebrating his win, even though he didn't have to stop and battle sea monsters all night and make the ocean safe for sailors again. You're welcome, by the way. All right, Umfrith said. So you lost the race because you definitely stopped to spend all night killing behemoth sea monsters in their natural habitat with one dagger. Yep, Beowulf said with a smile. Okay, one, I don't believe you, Unferth said. And two, you're gonna die tonight. So many people have died fighting Grendel. You don't stand a chance. Hmm, that's so, Beowulf said. Unferth, right? Your name? I think I've actually heard about you. You killed your brother, right? Is that you? Are you that, Unferth? The really terrible person who murdered a family member? Oh, I'm sorry, is that a sore spot? Well, if you don't want to be known as someone who killed a family member, maybe don't kill family members. Maybe if you spent more time taking dangerous swimming trips and making the sea safe for sailors like I definitely did, and less time killing your family members, Grendel wouldn't be such a problem. Unferth stood there in shock and said, Wow, not cool. First time conversation and you're just going to pepper in the brother murder thing? I was just trying to help. With that, Unferth turned and left the man he still thought was going to die. And yeah, as a quick aside from the story, I don't know the story behind why Unferth reportedly killed his brother. It's not really explained. But that being said, if you're having a hard time backing up your flimsy sea monster story, casually accusing the guy you're arguing with of being a kin killer and saying he will suffer damnation in the depths of hell, as Beowulf actually said in the poem, is a nice way to quickly end any conversation. Ever the polite house guest, Beowulf turned to the rest of the Danes, King Hrothgar's people, there in the meat hall, saying that it's okay that you're all just terrible at fighting and Grendel knows that he can just trample and humiliate you and drink your milkshake. Don't worry about it anymore, though. I'm different. Papa Beowulf's here. After tonight, you precious little guys will be able to drink all the meat you want here without some pesky little monstrous demon of the night causing trouble. Okay, that's heavily paraphrased. But Beowulf did insult Unferth and then the rest of the Danes for, you know, dying. But they were unfazed. They basically said, yeah, we've really dropped the ball on this Grendel thing. All right, let's drink. And drink they did. They opened up some of the mead barrels still stored in the back of the hall and decided to get a little loud and a little crazy. If they were going to attract Grendel, they were going to attract Grendel. I should also say that even though I playfully cast doubt on it, it's generally accepted that the character of Beowulf raced in the sea and spent all night killing sea monsters, and that's why he lost. Beowulf, though he is incredibly arrogant, was everything he said he was. might just be the brave, awesomely strong, once again his words, warrior he said he was. But he still needed to fight a monster where many, many warriors before him had not just tried and failed, but tried and died. But that will be right after the break. This week's episode is brought to you by Movement Watches. Okay, so you might not know this, but Movement was built from the ground up by two broke college kids who wanted to wear stylish watches, but they couldn't afford them, so they decided to do something about it by starting a company. And I really like their story. 
because it kind of reminds me of my own. I couldn't find a show quite like Myths and Legends, so I decided to make one. I was making something that I wanted to hear, and it turns out that a lot more people were looking for this type of show too. That's one of the reasons I really like Movement Watches. They did the same thing. The makers couldn't find what they were looking for, and so they created it. How did they make a watch with classic design, quality construction, and styled minimalism starting at just $95? They sell completely online, cutting out the middleman. That's how to sell over 500,000 watches in over 160 countries. I love their story. I love their watches. I wear one. Really, check it out. Just go to mvmtwatches.com myths. And you can get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns. You can even grab one for your Valentine before it's too late. That's mvmtwatches.com myths. Join the movement. This week's episode is brought to you by Blue Apron. For less than $10 a person per meal, Blue Apron delivers easy-to-follow recipes with pre-portioned, fresh ingredients right to your door. We've been using Blue Apron for months, and Chris and I like it so much that we got it for a few family members this past Christmas, and now they love it. I love it because you get to eat really well and make these interesting, delicious meals without having to go to the grocery store. Blue Apron gets ingredients from over 150 local farms, ranches, and fisheries from all over the U.S., and you only get what you need for those recipes, so there's no wasted food. Some of the meals I'm looking forward to this February are cashew chicken stir-fry with tango mandarins and jasmine rice, udon noodle soup with miso and soft-boiled eggs, roasted pork with apple, walnut, and farro salad, and crispy barramundi with quinoa and roasted carrot salad. And you can check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com legends. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com legends. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. It was like old times. People were laughing and joking and drinking, and the fires inside the mead hall were burning bright. Rothgar kept looking outside, toward the horizon, with anxiety. Finally, just before the sun disappeared, he knew the time had come. He took a deep breath and told his queen and any others that didn't want to face it that they needed to go. People rushed from the hall, all but the 15 geats prepared to leave, and Rothgar went to Beowulf, clasping him on the shoulder and saying that he liked the man. He should beware, Grendel, but if Beowulf won the night, there wouldn't be anything he wished for that wouldn't be his. He gave Beowulf a nod and a pat on the back and left out into the snow. Beowulf paced the floor. Sure, no weapon or shield was good, but was that Beowulf enough? He felt like he could do better. He felt his chainmail shirt and his armor. Now, if you've seen the 2007 Beowulf movie, you might think that he fought Grendel naked. He probably didn't. He just took off his armor and he would fight with whatever clothes he would have been wearing underneath. With everyone gone, the party was over and the wind whipped across the deserted, snowy fields outside. Beowulf laid down in front of the door, took a deep breath and actually went to sleep. The other Geats, his 14 friends who had crossed the sea with him and were about 90% sure they would not see the next morning, settled down too for the most tense slumber party ever. Hours later, the moonlight was muddled by the murky clouds overhead. If there had been someone out on the cold moors, they would have seen someone, something, loping across the fields. 
heading for the hall. There are a lot of different depictions of Grendel out there. From the anti-hero in the book Grendel to the 2007 movie depiction, the depictions range from a deformed, unthinking monster to an ugly troll-like brute to a clawed, clever, and demonic figure. I'm thinking that the last fits better with the original text. And I posted some pictures of the cooler depictions of Grendel that I found on MythPodcast.com. Grendel bounded across the icy moors toward the Mead Hall, standing tall in the distance. He had heard the songs and laughter, and he saw the fire glowing in the night from miles away. The Danes were there, and Grendel was hungry. With every step, his claws dug into the snow until he was standing before the door to the Mead Hall. He towered above it and gave it a shove, but it was barred from the inside. Grendel snarled and dug his claws into the edges of the door and pulled. The thick timber barring the other side of the door splintered, cracked, and broke. In a few seconds, Grendel was filling the massive doorway, staring into the meat hall, full of the still sleeping geats. Grendel had been at it for 12 years, and he didn't waste time. Before the geats had time to wake from the sound of the door being torn off its hinges, or the cold air from the outside blowing across them, Grendel was inside the meat hall, leaving a trail of saliva behind him. In a few more seconds, he had buried his claws into a man sleeping to the right of the door, on a bench. Grendel's claws cut through the chainmail like paper, and the man never woke up. Grendel took a few bites, tearing chunks from the warrior, and looked down. There, in the middle of the floor, was an unarmed, unarmored man. Grendel tossed the dead warrior aside, and raised his talon to start and finish the fight with the sleeping Beowulf. He brought it down hard on Beowulf's unprotected stomach, and it stopped just a few inches short of impaling him. Beowulf woke when Grendel took the first bite of his friend, and silently cursed himself for sleeping so long. Also, why would he sleep at all? They're going to fight a giant monster that they know is coming. Maybe they shouldn't have had so much mead before fighting the demonic monster that had killed countless warriors before them. Anyway, Beowulf had cracked his eyes to see Grendel's talon coming for him, and he acted fast enough to catch the monster's wrist. Grendel, who had quite literally never been opposed by anyone, was surprised that this man was able to hold his wrist. Grendel tried to wrench himself free, but Beowulf's grip was like iron. Then, Beowulf began to turn Grendel's arm. It was uncomfortable at first, and then it was painful. Then, Grendel, the great monster who haunted the darkened fens, began to panic. The bones in his wrist, elbow, and shoulder began to twist and pop and break. Grendel uttered an otherworldly cry, and, in moments, the entire warrior crew was awake. Grendel brought his other clawed hand down, but Beowulf caught that too. Then, Grendel threw his whole body into the fight with Beowulf to try to break free, but Beowulf wouldn't let him. They started grappling around the meat hall, and Beowulf's other warriors rushed to avoid the destruction. Beowulf and Grendel crushed tables and benches. The pair kept rolling, each trying to get the better of the other, all the while smashing into the walls and destroying tables and benches. Beowulf pushed off the wall and rolled on top of Grendel. Grendel dug his claws into the wood floor and put all of his weight and strength into getting out from under Beowulf, but found that he couldn't move. The monster's eyes widened. He began to flail and thrash with everything he had, but to no avail. Beowulf had worked him into a trap, and now Beowulf had Grendel pinned to the floor of the meat hall. The hall was filled with a horrible wailing, and then silence. Everyone waited to see what Beowulf would do with the beast that he now had completely in his power. They did not have to wait long. Beowulf pulled a taloned arm up from Grendel. With several cracks, Beowulf planted his foot on the monster's ribcage and pulled. With a loud, grotesque pop, sinews split and the bone lappings burst. 
Beowulf tore Grendel's arm from his body. The monster shrieked and, unbalanced, Beowulf fell from on top of him. The monster was free. Grendel put his other hand over the gaping wound, a vain attempt to stop the blood from pouring out. He pushed past Beowulf and ran out the door. The last anyone saw of the monster, he was scrambling in a panic across the fields, leaving a trail of blood steaming on the snow behind him. At first light, Beowulf's warriors followed the trail of blood. It went for a short distance before disappearing into a putrid swamp. The swamp stretched on for leagues, and it became apparent to the warriors that Grendel, missing an arm and most of his shoulder, had crawled off to some desolate place in the marshes to die alone. They walked back to the meat hall. Hrothgar rode to the meat hall the next morning and despaired when he saw the blood on the snow. It happened again. The Geats were dead. Then he heard singing and celebrating inside the hall. Hrothgar refused to believe it until he saw them alive. Then he was beside himself with joy. The nightmare that had plagued his lands for years and years, the monster who had eviscerated scores of his best warriors and who had been a dark, haunting symbol of his shame was gone. Hrothgar and his people were free, and it was all thanks to Beowulf. Hrothgar congratulated Beowulf and honored him before the weary warriors. He told Beowulf that the warrior would want for nothing and that he would make it so. Everyone gathered around the arm and shoulder that Grendel had left. Unferth, the guy who called in to question Beowulf's sea monster story the night before, stood over the arm, slack-jawed. Beowulf had done it, and wow, the arm alone was super scary. It was hairy and covered with spikes. The taloned fist was razor sharp and harder than any weapon the Danes had ever known. Unferth felt Beowulf pat him on the back and just stood wide-eyed, staring at the thing. He looked up at Beowulf, pair nodded at each other, and Unferth gave him a look that said, I stand corrected. And Beowulf gave him a look that said, yes, yes you do. And Unferth went to help the others restoring the meat hall. Over the next several hours, there was a flurry of repairs, benches, walls, and even the doors had to be replaced. But they could do it in confidence now, knowing that there wasn't anything else out there stalking the night that would bring death to this now warm and welcoming place. When the meat hall was finally repaired, King Hrothgar put on a magnificent celebration in Beowulf's honor. There was poetry, drinking, swords, and horses, so all in all, a great party. Soon, the mead and the work of the day began to have their effects on the people, and they became tired. They were happy, though. They would actually be able to sleep in the hall. Grendel was dead, or if he wasn't, he would be soon. The king and the queen went to their own chamber, and Beowulf and his geats were given special quarters. Everyone else pushed the benches and tables to the sides, and lay bedding on the floor. Still, no one really wanted to sleep near the door. They had all heard stories of Grendel's attacks, and some had even survived the raids in the night, when nothing but blood and bones had been left of those that had slept near the door. They knew he was dead, but they were still wary. Then, Asherah, King Hrothgar's best warrior, laid his bedding down near the door. He would sleep there, and show that Grendel's attacks were a thing of the past. This was a new day for the Danes. Everyone settled into a heavy sleep, happy and hopeful for the future. The Mead Hall once again a warm, safe bulwark against the cold and threatening darkness. They probably thought they were having a nightmare at first. It couldn't be happening. Not again. Grendel was dead. The ones closest to the door heard the door fly open and the biting cold of the Danish winter roused them from sleep. The thanes by the door trembled when they saw it, 
when they saw her. She wasn't as big as Grendel, and she was cloaked in shadow. The only thing that the terrified Dane saw were her glowing eyes and mad, twisted smile. Ashera was right underneath her, but she didn't appear to notice him. He regulated his breathing and watched the thing as she surveyed the room with a hungry look. Ashera knew his axe was on the bench, less than an arm's length from his head. He knew to have a fighting chance, he would have to get his weapon before the monster attacked. His fingers grazed the handle on the bench behind him as he saw the monster's head snap down and the eyes focus on him. It had seen his hand moving. He lunged for his axe, but it was too late. The monster thrust one of her bladed fingers down and impaled Ashera, pinning him to the ground. Scraping her claw free from the floor, the creature raised the man to its wide, grinning mouth, and in one bite, took off his legs at the knees. The hall was awake, and the sounds of Ashera's screams, punctuated by the monster chewing their best warrior, was more than they could bear. They had cowered in the face of Grendel. They would not do so again. One man raised his axe above his head, then another. Soon, the room erupted into a battle cry. The monster, still grinning, wasn't scared, and with what was left of the dying Ashera still dangling from her finger, she turned and loped off across the frozen fields until she disappeared completely into the darkness. Those left in the meat hall, gripping their weapons with the cold stinging their skin, could only watch, dumbfounded and contemplating this new horror as the winds whipped off across the midnight moors. That's it for this week. Next week, Hrothgar comes clean about what just happened, and Beowulf dives 20,000 leagues under a lake to pay a visit to one of folklore's scariest moms. There's a new episode of Career Day out this week, and it'll actually be weekly for the month of February. This time, Chris is talking to Steve from New Jersey, who, by day, is a mild-mannered organic chemist. But when nighttime comes around, Steve has an alter ego, one that might not be entirely legal. It's a really interesting episode that goes deeper into Steve's personal story, about stuff I'd never heard of before. Really, check it out. You can find it on iTunes at itunes.careerdayshow.com. Dot com or wherever you get your podcasts by searching for Career Day by Carissa Weiser. The creature this week is the Yaramayahu from Australian Aboriginal mythology. Now, based on everything I've read for this podcast, I would advise against taking a nap in the forest. But if you find yourself in the Australian outback and are way too sleepy and see a nice shady fig tree to rest under, well, maybe pick the one without a creepy hairless red monster dangling down with his vampire fingers. The Yaramayahu will wait until its victim is asleep under a fig tree and then drop down an attack with all of its sucker fingers and thumbs, instantly draining the person of all their blood. Seeing as we need our blood to live, people generally don't fight back as the Yaramayahu eats them in one bite and then takes a nap. Now, if this was all the creature did, it wouldn't be that noteworthy. A lot of creatures eat people in the forest. That's as scary as it is, nothing new. This one's interesting because of what it does after it wakes up from its nap. While the victim is in the thing's stomach, the person's blood is being run through the creature's body and then is put back in the victim. After the Yaramayahu wakes up from its nap, it vomits up the victim and continues on its day. The victim will wake up covered in the slimy residue of whatever is inside the Yaramayahu's stomach, wondering what in the world just happened. The victim will also notice that they're a little bit shorter, their head a little bit larger, and their skin a little more bright and red and hairless than they thought it was when they went to sleep. That's because, like zombies, 
The Yaramai whose dinner is also its main form of reproduction. When they eat people, they turn them into Yaramai Yahoos, with one odd caveat, they do so gradually. Every time a person gets eaten by the creature, their head gets a little bigger, their skin redder and more hairless, and their fingers slightly more vampire-y. I'm pretty sure that's not a word. You have to be eaten multiple times by the Yaramai Who before you feel like it's a great idea to hang out naked and hairless in fig trees, attacking whoever sleeps underneath. The IV solution, after the first time you wake up spit-covered, red, and slightly more frog-like, where the last thing you remember is a weird little creature putting its vampire fingers on you, maybe don't go back and sleep under fig trees. Multiple times. Because if this is the fifth time you've woken up under a fig tree covered in spit, with a higher-than-usual desire for human blood, it might be good to find a better place to nap. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to other music in the show notes. And if you'd like to follow the show on Twitter or Facebook, you can find me there at Myth Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>